This episode is brought to you by Nyman Ranch. I'm Paul Willis, a fifth-generation farmer and co-founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Learn more about us at nymanranch.com. Welcome back to Hardcore from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. I'm Hannah Forden. Last time, we visited Cornell University, where scientists are working to develop new genetics to strengthen the apples of the future. On this episode, it's all about the farms and farmers behind cider. From foraging in abandoned orchards, we find groups of wild apple trees and collect the apples by going out into the woods. And if it's a larger tree, climbing up into the tree after putting a tarp on the ground, shaking said tree, collecting them and uh, bringing them back to the cidery. To forging a new path in this growing industry. There has been no commercial cider industry in the Northeast or in the U.S., so it is, in fact, building a new industry in many ways on the, the bones of, um, or on the branches would be a better, <laughs> a better metaphor of these existing orchards, and creating huge amounts of employment for people who live within those rural communities. And the potential perils faced by small farmers. There's so many different ways to farm. The scary thing is, is that all the pesticides and synthetic chemicals that we're using in everything is for sure polluting the environment. And it's being done that way because it's the only affordable way to do it. Join me as I trek through orchards to deepen our knowledge of the impact that tourism, policy, collaborations, and farming practices can have on our cider. In 2002, Brad Kaler bought a new home, not far from where he worked at Middlebury College in Vermont. This whole area in Cornwall and in Shoreham, the next town over, has been uh, the main orchard growing region, apple growing region in the state for over 200 years, since revolutionary times. Like many rural properties in the Northeast, Brad's house came with an apple orchard. It had been overgrown by about seven years, seven, eight years, and so it needed a tremendous amount of pruning, a lot of dead trees that needed to cut out. It hadn't been mowed in four years. Like, it was, doesn't look anything like it looks now. <laughs> Brad spent years restoring his orchard before he started making cider. Like so many of the cider makers we've met along the way, his business started as a hobby. Today, Windfall Orchards produces delicious cider and collaborates with other cideries like Eden and Shaxbury. As we learned in the last episode, growing apples isn't easy. Even as scientists at Cornell are working hard to make more resilient trees, farmers do their own experimentation out in the orchard. Every seed of every apple would produce a unique tree pretty crazy. Most of them are not good for anything. They're usually too acidic or uh, not enough sugar, or whatever the case may be, too soft texture. Maybe only one out of every thousand might be an apple that's worth something. So a Macintosh apple, a seed 
from a Macintosh apple will not produce a Macintosh tree. It would produce its own unique apple based on the cross-pollination from the bees. This poses a challenge for apple farmers who are trying to grow a steady supply of apples. On the plus side, it means that there are a lot of interesting varieties out there waiting to be discovered. When you drive around Vermont, there's apple trees everywhere. They're used as property lines. Um, they're literally everywhere. Like if you're, it's fun to be with people that have never driven around Vermont. You look around, you're like looking at the side of the road, and you're like, there's an apple tree, there's an apple tree, there's an apple tree. And they just like blend in so naturally. A lot of them are, you know, just wild seedlings. That's Luke Schmucker. He's a partner at Shaxbury Cider in Vermont. With Shaxbury's Lost Apple Project, they've given up control in favor of the rewarding chaos that comes from working with foraged apples. Go out and we find wild apple trees that are producing fruit that's good for cider, whether it be high tannin, high acidity fruit, stuff that even though we have a lot of uh, orchards up in Vermont, there's not a ton of high tannin, high acidity apples grown. And Shaxbury has apple scouts everywhere keeping an eye out for unnoticed trees. Hey, there's this cluster of trees, or uh, animals tend to congregate around fruit trees in the woods. So a hunter, if they trust you, and they know that you'll leave a couple on the ground for deer or whatever it is, they'll be like, hey, there's a bunch of really good apple trees back in these woods, and they're super bitter and super tannic. Um, Leave a couple on the ground, but take what you need. A little treasure hunting yields some exciting results. It's a great true representation, uh, sounds kind of geeky, but like of Vermont to have a wild foraged apple cider that is just fermented with the yeast on the skins. There's really nothing added to it. It's the most, you know, simple, natural, beautiful way to, to make cider from Vermont. This labor of love not only brings us delicious, funky ciders, but is also an archival endeavor. Our Lost Apple project is a labor of love. Is really Luke works with growers like Brad Kaler to preserve these lost apple varieties found in the wilds of Vermont. Through a process called grafting, they transplant branches from foraged apple trees onto the base or rootstock of a resilient tree. That way, cider fruit can grow plentifully on a stronger tree than they might have started off with. Brad will explain better than I can. In order to grow desired fruit, you have to graft. And the type of grafting that we do here is often referred to as a top graft or a cleft graft. And so uh, this type of grafting is done in the springtime, the late spring, as the trees are starting to move the energy from the roots up uh, into the tree structure for the buds to begin to grow. So we have about a two-week window when that happens. And... The process is essentially taking a fairly large branch and sawing it completely off uh, in a perpendicular way to expose the cambium layer. And then we use a, a sharp tool to sort of split that. And then we take what's called the scion wood, which is one year growth wood from the tree that we want to graft on and we trim that scion wood in such a way that we also expose the cambium layer of that. And then we take the little piece of scion wood and line up the cambium layer by sticking it into the where we split that sawed-off branch. So 
have two little sticks coming out of a sawed branch and then we wax the whole thing over with a special uh, grafting wax uh, to keep all the moisture in. These Franken-trees grow much better than they would without the farmer's intervention. And then as the tree begins to break buds and uh, grow, if the cambium layers are lined up properly, uh, that new scion will start growing, putting out leaves and growing, and then over a couple of years, three years, start producing fruit. For that little graft to grow into a full branch is probably about five years. About the time that it looks like a branch and not like some science project uh, is about the time that they'll start bearing fruit, three to five years. There's a metaphor here about collaboration. Two trees grafted together are more fruitful than they would be on their own. Kind of like when cider makers work together. Here's Luke Schmucker again. It's not like it happens overnight and you have to have partners that are willing to go on that journey with you. You got to be in it together. They're not just going to go out on a limb and, you know, who's not trend chasing. People that own orchards in New England, they're, they're in it for the long haul. So it's nothing fast in that, that industry. In this new industry, having stable partnerships can allow something truly novel to take root. Okay, sorry, no more puns. We have one tree in the orchard that has 10 varieties grafted on. Each branch is a different variety. Uh, and the main reason uh, we did that is it's a experimental uh, trial uh, in conjunction with Shaxbury. Uh, and we took what they felt were their 10 best wild varieties that they found for their lost and found project and grafted them onto the tree to judge how well they took to grafting, how quickly they uh, came into fruit production, what the quality of the fruit was, what the fruit uh, flavor characteristics were. And we did that sort of to determine, you know, out of those 10, are there certain varieties that are, are better suited for the grafting than others? And it's turned out that nine of the 10 have done really well. And so it was really initially done as a, a trial project. And then varieties that we have found to be very successful, we've added those into the orchard. Eric Schott from Redbird Cider in the Finger Lakes also relies on grafting to propagate foraged fruit. It's a big part of our cider today. It's really cool because they were selected mainly because of the quality of the fruit from a cider perspective, but also the fact that they flourished in an environment with no human inputs. So they were completely um, disease resistant and produced healthy apples for, for eating and for making cider. So they were selected by nature to survive in this climate. And we are now growing them in our orchard and they continue to show those same disease resistant traits. Are these forage trees going to play a part in the future of cider? If so, they're going to have some snappy names. We've named a few, and they're all kind of they all come from a place, right? Barnhill Sharp was growing out of an old stone barn foundation on a hill. Gnarled Chapman was a gnarled tree, and the Chapman is a reference to Johnny Appleseed. Searsburg Cherry Bomb is a small cherry-sized apple that looks like a cherry bomb, and it was uh, I discovered it on Searsburg Road here in the Finger Lakes. Texas king crab was discovered in the Texas Hollow State Forest, and it's a king crab because it's a crab apple. By diversifying the types of trees that farmers can cultivate, 
Grafting allows cider makers to explore a broad range of flavor profiles. We have over 100 different varieties of apples in our orchard, and that gives us this um, kind of real artistic ability to craft the cider based 100% on the characters in the apples. Somehow, it always comes back to taste of place. And these wild-foraged apple varieties are something special. At Redbird, they keep their fermentation process as simple as possible in order to shine a spotlight on their exceptional fruit. They get mixed, they get blended essentially at the press. They get milled into apple mash and the mash gets pressed and the, the, the apple juice gets transferred into a stainless tank or an oak barrel and it just goes through a primary fermentation and it's, it's like as simple as anything, right? It's just converting the sugar and the juice to alcohol and carbon dioxide. And then what we end up with is a totally bone dry cider. It is the apples. It is the fruit. And Redbird's style has always been to showcase the fruit. Like we want the fruit to shine. We want it to be as transparent as possible. And so there's no influence of oak. There's no influence of any other fruits or additives. We'll head back out into the orchard after a quick break. My name is Paul Willis. I'm a fifth generation hog farmer and I owned and operated the Willis Free Range Pig Farm for over 41 years. I've dedicated my life to revitalizing sustainable hog farming methods in the Midwest and moving farms away from the common industrial practices. In 1998, I established the Nyman Ranch Pork Company. I'm proud to say Nyman Ranch has since grown into a network of over 740 independent family farmers and ranchers today. At Nyman Ranch, our animals are raised with care. We believe that the quality of an animal's life impacts the quality of the meat. Our high standards were developed with the help of animal welfare expert, Dr. Temple Grandin, and are among the strictest in the industry. All of our animals live outdoors or in deeply bedded pens, and they're never given antibiotics or added hormones ever, and are only fed a high quality 100% vegetarian diet. Whether they're raising hogs, cattle, or lamb, Nyman Ranch farmers and ranchers share our commitment to traditional farming. Raising livestock in the way our parents and grandparents did and supporting our rural communities. We share a common belief that humane and sustainable methods produce the best possible flavor. Learn more about our work at Nyman Ranch at nymanranch.com. Welcome back to Hardcore. So far, we've learned about foraging and grafting. And we've explored the pure celebration of fruit in cider making. For Deva and Eric at Redbird Cidery, the way they make their cider stems from a comprehensive philosophy that encompasses much more than just the bottles they sell. We're certified biodynamic for our orchard, and we're actually about to get our... um, Cidery certified. Organic, biodynamic, what does it all mean? So organic certification, organic agriculture is 
basically it's a set of rules that prevents any synthetic fertilizers or pesticides to be used in an agricultural system. There's also, when it comes to like um, livestock and milk, there's other, other things. But as far as produce is concerned, that's really what it's about is that organic substances were used to grow this fruit or vegetable. With biodynamic um, agriculture and biodynamic certification, it's not it, it it is organic, but on top of that, there's this real um, need to be kind of a um, a closed loop farm, and that is achieved by not only having plants on the farm but also animals, and they work together in you know symbiotic symbiotically to feed each other and to you know to help each other. The philosophy of biodynamic farming comes from early 20th century Austrian scholar Rudolf Steiner. Steiner is best known for creating the educational philosophy behind Waldorf schools. While Steiner continues to be a controversial figure who has been criticized as ethnocentric and anti-Semitic, setting that aside for another time. His philosophy of farming lives on today and is practiced by some of the most celebrated natural wine and cider producers in the country and across the world. The interplay between people, plants, animals, and the cosmos are crucial in biodynamic agriculture. So we have sheep, ducks, and geese that are grazing throughout our orchards um, during certain times of the year, and they're providing um, a healthy biology to the soil. We compost manure and then feed that back to the trees um, in the early spring. And um, all our pumice from our um, pressings is food for the sheep and the ducks and geese. So there's like this circular system. This cycle limits waste and provides farmers with natural alternatives to pesticides. So that's essentially what a lot of these preparations are doing in a farm setting they're really kind of like creating this chain reaction that is, I keep saying this, harmonizing the farm or bringing it into balance. And so they're, they're kind of, um, it's like, it's, it's just another, to me, it's another tool that can help in growing food in a way that reduces inputs and things that could potentially harm other organisms in the environment. Even in organic production, sulfur and copper overuse is not good for soil microbiology. So if we can reduce all those things together and we can grow fruit with low input and then have fruit that is of exceptional quality, we're kind of moving in, I think, a good direction. So to me, that's, that's the whole idea is... Um, is really kind of in incorporating biodynamics into an orchard to reduce the potential um, downsides of agriculture, really. It's not easy to push back against conventional agriculture. Eric knows that more than most. In addition to making his own biodynamic cider at home, he also helps run the Cornell Orchard, where they spray for pests and weeds in order to keep their trees as pristine as possible for study. I can't say that conventional is horrible because there's a lot of things about conventional ag that make a lot of sense. I mean, as far as just production, right? If you're a, if you're a fresh fruit grower and you 
need to get a thousand bushels per acre to pay your bills, then a conventional system really is the less risky way to go. If you're a cider maker and you want to make really complex, concentrated cider, then growing fruit that way is not the right way to go. And biodynamic organic agriculture gives you more concentrated flavor and, and quality. And so it's really, it's really a complicated topic because the other thing that's happening in ag more so today than even 10 years ago is this incredible pressure economically to make it work. And so many farms over the last 60 years have gone under or, or, or combined. The discussion about conventional agriculture versus lower intervention techniques like organic or biodynamic farming goes far beyond flavor. The environment is being destroyed because we can't afford to be better farmers. So an example of our home farm being biodynamic, I hope that we're, we're living and giving an example of a better way for the environment, for people, for the future of sustainability on the earth. But certainly, if everybody in the world tried to farm this way, it wouldn't work in this economic model that we have today. So, so there's a lot of things that have to change. Our industrial food system won't change overnight. And in the meantime, small farmers have to seek out innovative ways to keep afloat in an economy that prioritizes big ag. Here is Megan Larmer, director of regional food programs at the nonprofit Glenwood Center for Regional Food and Farming. There had been, for decades, a, a real decline in um, orchard land within the Hudson Valley. And pick your own and agritourism were some of the major props to hold up those spaces. And cider has been, for many of those farmers, uh, yet another value-add opportunity and one that also helps them to extend the season for bringing people onto their farm in a way that, that helps them to increase their revenue and maintain the viability of that farm. Adding cider to a farm's output can be an important way to increase revenue and entice city dwellers to visit the country. Here's where agricultural tourism, or agritourism, comes in. And we've even seen farms in that area because of their in part because of their um, addition of cider to the different agritourism elements that they offer, be able to acquire more orchard land and put more land into agricultural use and even into um, just full conservation. So setting aside tracts of land and being able to maintain that because people are coming in part for the view while they have a, a delicious glass of cider, right? So I think um, that would be the positive side. While tourism provides a vital source of income to rural communities, it can come with complications. Here is farmer and cider maker Melissa Madden. You might remember her from our second episode when she spoke about the challenges of labeling her cider. I have a concern about the actual growing of food versus the production of booze and how land is being used that way. And it's a conversation that uh, we had very specifically at the Good Life Farm, the Finger Lake Cider House. Like we always maintained a diversified farm. Um, and that's be that was increasingly more challenging as our visitation grew and our staff grew to just support the cider house hospitality side while trying to actually be a diversified farm producing food. While rural communities are in desperate need of economic revitalization, 
Does focusing on tourist attractions deter from the importance of growing the food we eat? You know, booze is kind of held up as this sort of like golden light to solve the problems of your farm. And I personally feel like that's uh, problematic and yet I'm still participating in it. There is a balance to be sought between food and alcohol production, and they can exist symbiotically to prevent waste. For one thing, cider apples, unlike grocery store apples, don't have to be pretty. An ugly apple that can be pressed into cider is, is a gift to that system, I guess is what I would say. It, it leaves you the opportunity to do away with a lot of at least the aesthetic sprays that you're forced into when you're doing fresh market fruit. And that's a minimum. And then it also lets you do some really cool experimentations around the stress or lack of stress that you put your trees under in terms of developing sugar and phenolic compounds in your fruit. And it's, it's a beautiful part of agriculture to be involved in. It's really like that farm, like the forest um, mentality. That fruit doesn't tend to be beautiful, but it's often very delicious. Cider making can open the door for apple farmers to be more regenerative. Here's Eric from Redbird again. All the old farms in this area had at least a few apple trees, right? For putting apples in the root cellar or making pies or making cider. And most of those orchards are gone, but still there's some today. And the unfortunate reality is I think that most of the fruits on those trees that exist is just allowed to decay because the perception of what an apple is is what you see on the grocery store in the shelf and when you're not an expert horticulturist and you have a tree in your backyard and it has apples on it that are covered with scab, you might just assume that it's worthless, right? And you just let it drop and, and let the deer eat it. But that was not the wisdom 60 years ago. We all knew that scab was fine and that those little deformed apples were great for making pies and great for making cider, so we still use them. And so kind of goes back to education and um, just utilizing all these options. So now you know for the future, don't toss out your ugly apples, cook them or ferment them for delicious results. In this episode, we've talked about cider makers working with farmers and farmers working with each other. But what can the government do for farmers and cider makers alike? To weigh in on this topic, I turn to cider expert and advocate Jen Smith. She's the former executive director of the New York Cider Association, where she worked closely with cider makers in the state to promote their work and elevate this new industry. So in and around between 2012 and 2014, Governor Cuomo turned his attention towards the craft beverage industry as a, a potential economic engine for New York State and tied that in with agriculture by replicating the farm winery license class for farm distilleries, breweries, and cideries. And what that did was reduce the red tape uh, that would lead to, um, you know, a kind of an onerous application process for craft beverage producers. It suddenly became easier to get a license to make booze if you were doing it on a farm. The kind of buy-in was that you would need to use New York State ag product in your uh, in your value add product, right? So, um, 
barley in your beer, grapes in your wine, and of course, apples in your cider. New York, for its farm cidery licenses, requires 100% New York State fruit be used. Um, That's a higher threshold than the other categories of craft beverage have. The history of American cider is deeply rooted in farmhouse cideries. Thanks to farm cidery licenses, the door is open for more locally made cider. Of course, before there was a farm cidery license, there were no farm cideries, right? So we went from none to in the first year, 24. Mm -hmm. Um, We're now up, you know, in the last time I looked, mid 40s, possibly 50. While this new law introduced new streams of revenue for farmers, the transition hasn't always been easy, especially when it comes to cider. One of the challenges of this developing industry is the relative lack of understanding around what cider is, what role it plays um, in the culinary landscape. Um, And because there's that lack of understanding, um, kind of, you know, the flip side of what cider isn't. Here we come to the question. Is cider wine or is it beer? the definition of cider is tied to how the government regulates alcohol content. Right, so fermented palm fruit is cider. Cider is fermented palm fruit. And yet the lack of understanding is so grave and, and so um, essential that the federal government um, quibbles with producers who are making cider from apples that they've grown and nothing else. And there are challenges around being able to have cider on the label because the uh, the alcohol level is too high, right? This sort of natural process of fermentation, these apples had enough sugar and it wants to be, you know, 12% ABV uh, rather than 8% ABV or 8.5% ABV. And so suddenly you can't call it cider. ABV aside, There's no denying that cider is an agricultural product. And right now, with farm-to-table restaurants popping up on every corner, it's time that cider has a place at the table. Here's Deva Moss from Redbird. I'm glad we're making cider now. Uh, I feel like in the early, what was it, like the the mid-90s was kind of when the consumers started really looking at organic and wondering about food, and then it kind of increased. I went to college um, out at Evergreen State College in Olympia in 1994 to 98 with a degree in sustainable ag. And right then it was, you know, it was just taking off on the consumer asking about that and wondering where it was. And I feel like now that's a very comfortable space. The consumer is wondering how their food is grown. And I think we're now getting to the point where people are are applying that to their beverages, to everything else. And I think it started with a health concern, people saying what's in what's going in. And now it has expanded to growing practices and how it's affecting the earth. And where do you want to put your money? I think a lot of consumers now are are realizing they're almost voting with their dollars. So what do they want to support? And I feel like it's a great opportunity for us to tell our story and say, yes, the cider might cost more, but this is where those dollars are going to. Supporting sustainable food and beverage systems is more essential than ever. And consumers are ready to support local food and beverages. Drink cider, help a farmer.
Next time on Hardcore, we're moving out of the orchard and into the cider marketplace. From communicating the spirit of a brand, we always have really deep, long conversations about the wording that we put on our cans because we want to keep it tight. We don't want there to be a ton of text on there, but like you're trying to get a few things across to the consumer. So like, what's the best way to do that? And then, you know, from a visual aesthetic, it's what will stand out on the shelf without being flashy because New Englanders aren't flashy. I mean, I wear the same shirts that my dad wore and, uh, you know, maybe they fit slightly different, but like we're still wearing the same stuff and it's like, you think about like an L.L. Bean flannel, it's never really going in or out of style. To broadening the audience cider appeals to by rethinking the story behind it. Mike and I are very intentional about moving away from historical references, woodsy references, folksy references in part because like that's not something that appeals to us and I don't think it it appeals to our consumer base in Oakland. I think in part because it like you said references like this term of what people think cider is that actually isn't representative of of what cider tastes like. We're taking a look at everything from the front label to the price tag. I think there needs to be a really frank conversation about how much these things cost and how we can work to get people to actually pay the real value of what's in the bottle. That's all coming up on the next episode of Hardcore. Hardcore is produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Hannah Forden, with lots of help from Kat Johnson. This episode was engineered by Matt Patterson, with additional engineering by Jeet Paul. Special thanks to Jordan Werner Berry. Hardcore is powered by Simplecast. Hardcore is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. We'll be back. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about Host, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, J.J. Johnson, and Jeff Gordnier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.